So I'd like to tonight to look at uh, two different things connected uh, with each other. The first one is, as, as I said, I would talk about creative engagement and then also uh, one to look at uh, Vipassana, looking deeply, and actually its connection uh, with uh, compassion. So the first thing I'd like to look at is this creative engagement. What am I talking about? And actually, in order to talk about this, I have to talk a little about its opposite, which is grasping. And I think what the meditation, what the mindfulness, the awareness helps us to do, the concentration, the inquiry, is actually to start to notice the moment of contact. So that through the senses, we hear, we see, we smell, we taste, we think, we have sensation. And so one moment, there is no contact. Next, there is contact. And with contact, generally comes feeling torn, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And one easy way to notice this, contact, is when you eat food. You know, you are in the queue, you're getting close to the food, you see the color, the smell, you put it on your plate, and then you taste it. And if the contact is according to what you thought it would be, and if it's pleasant, mm, and nearly immediately, I want more. Did I take enough? <laughs> Can I come back for more? It's nearly immediate. Then it looks good, smells good, and you taste it, and it's really not what you thought it was going to be. Uh, this happened to a friend of mine once in Korea. This is, we used to eat formally uh, that time with bowls and everything, and you had to eat everything in your bowl. And she saw red soup. She assumed tomato soup. So she, had, she let the person ladle a lot in the bowl. And then she started to taste it. And it was actually chili pepper soup. And she had to drink it all. <laughs> so you tasted contact. Ugh. It's salty or it's bitter or it's not what you thought it was. How can I get rid of it <laughs> without anybody seeing me doing that? So that's what I mean. You see, generally what happens is that you have the contact, you have the feeling tone, and you far down in the storyline. And then it's generally often very hard to come back to where did it start? I remember once I was in a, in a center, and it was very difficult. People really were not into the silence. It was not in Gaia House. <laughs> it was somewhere else. Well, they're really not into you know, being uh, disciplined there. So we had talked about the silence. Da, da, da. So that was kind of, you know. And then I heard somebody of the team, one of the manager, talking to somebody else. And straight away, I heard her talk to somebody else, and then 
you know, oh, really, you know, even if the manager can't do it, and, uh, da, 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 da. and so, and then I said, wait a minute. And then later I talked to her, and actually she really needed to talk to that person in that moment. It was a fairly urgent thing. It was really was not idle talking. But I realized I did not know what she was talking about. So at that level, I had no idea. It was a good idea or a bad idea that she was talking to that person. But just a contact, hearing the talking, having the idea about the silence, two come together, unpleasant feeling torn, and shh, proliferation. So in a way, what we're trying to do here, actually, is actually through the process of coming back to the experience, being more in the experience, then becoming more aware at the beginning. The contact, the feeling tone. Because I think that that's where there is actually the moment of freedom. Because at that moment of contact and feeling tone, that's given. The contact, the feeling tone, is, is not to change the feeling tone. Though, it, of course, it can change with understanding. But it's not necessarily to change the feeling tone. But more to have the freedom, do I creatively engage with the feeling tone or do I grasp at it? To me, that's what, in a way, what we're doing is really about creating enough space, enough stability, enough openness, enough awareness that then we can see that more and then, in a way, we can have more freedom. And so then, what is interesting to look at is how do we go from this contact feeling tone to often something quite big? And I think this is important to look at that, to see the difference between creative engagement, which I feel is kind of like opening up, bringing possibility, bringing fluidity, and grasping. And I think often what happens is that you have this kind of, a, kind of a process of grasping. And so let me show it to you, just to show a little what I mean and what happened. So let's say this is very important to me. It's precious, it's gold or diamond, or it's the greatest truth in the universe. But whatever it is, it's precious and it's mine. This is very important to see. That generally with grasping, there is identification. I, me, mine. So this is mine. This is precious. I hold it dear. So generally I hold on to it. Because I want to keep it close. I don't want to share it too much with others. You never know what they would do with it. It's mine. So I grasp at it. And if I grasp at, at this for any length of time, two things happen. First one, I get a cramp in the arm. And I think this is often a sign of grasping is tension. Second thing, which actually I would say is worse, is that when I'm grasping at this, I cannot use my hand for anything else. So in a way, I am stuck to what I'm grasping at. 
So then, what's the solution? First solution, I cut the hand. <laughs> that, I think, is a bit drastic. And that often, I would say, is an ascetic path. Second solution, I get rid of the object. But the object is not saying, come, 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 you really want me. As Jake was pointing out yesterday, you know, you see the thing, the computer in the thing, you see the, the painting or you see the dress or whatever, and it's kind of like there is a glow around it. And it's saying, you really want me. You know, like it's calling out to us. We're not doing anything. The object is doing it. But I mean, the object is not doing anything. I mean, the object came upon conditions, and generally, as Jake mentioned, advertisement know very much about how to make the glow happen even more. And so, hmm, I want this. But I don't think the problem is the object. And so to me, what I would say, what we do with this meditation, with this awareness, is actually slowly, slowly, slowly releasing, learning to release. And then we can still use the object, but it can be moved. And then we can use a hand for something else. So then you have this process of grasping. And grasping generally comes with identification. I, me, mine. Then from that, there is kind of like a, a fixation around it, a limitation around it, and then, that's when it becomes problematic, we magnify around it. I think it's very important to see that when we grasp, we reduce ourselves at the same time as we magnify what we grasp at. And that's why then things become rather complicated. And so in a way, creative engagement is not the opposite but nearly. It's kind of saying, okay, there is contact, there is feeling torn, something is happening. How can I creatively engage with it instead of fixing around it and magnifying around it? Because there is actually two sidelines to this grasping. And Jake was talking a little about it last night. This kind of, when you grasp, Often you proliferate. This morning he was talking about prapancha. You proliferate. And the problem with proliferation is that you go into abstraction. And you can go into positive abstraction or you can go into negative abstraction. Let's take an example. Contact. The bell. You see, I go to various centers and in different centers... They have different bells, and sometimes you have a kind of tack sound. And this being Gaia House, they have a very nice bell. So you have this very nice sound. You know, it's not like it's, it's you know you have the right tool, the right, and then you can have a right sound and feel. Hmm, that's nice. So. I hear the sound, I see the bell, and I think, hmm, that's a nice sound. Ah, yeah, it's so nice. I would not mind having one like this. <laughs> I mean, 
I don't think I could take it because they would not appreciate that. But possibly, where could I get it, you know? Where could I buy it, you know? And where could I put it in my house? How could I put it in my luggage if I wanted to travel around the world with it so that I'm sure I have a good bell? Have you noticed something? That I'm not with this bell anymore. You see, creative engagement is, in a way, appreciating. That's what I do. You know, if, if there is a nice bell, I think, ah, that's nice. If the bell is not so good, well, I try to do the best I can with it. But I can still, creative engagement, you still appreciate the bell, the sound of the bell, but you stay there. It doesn't mean you cannot buy a bell if you want. But just to see how you can go so easily into this kind of, you know, abstraction, and then you are somewhere else. Not with the sound, not with the bell right now. Or you can start, that's what it's interesting. All around Gaia House, you might have seen we have very nice flower arrangement. And so you might go around and you see the nice flower arrangement. Oh, this is so spring-like. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, this is so nice. And just you could creatively engage with it, appreciate it, appreciate the person who's done it. Or, ah, God, such a nice flower arrangement. I mean, if only I could arrange flower in that way. I am hopeless. I can never do this. I've tried. I can never do this. I mean, I mean, I, I can't even arrange flowers. You know, I can never do anything in my life. Yeah, you know. And so from something which actually is quite pleasant, you could quickly actually go to quite a very dark place. Just with that, just with that proliferation. So in a way to see that we grasp, we identify and then we can proliferate. And in abstraction it's very difficult to creatively engage. Generally the the abstraction the proliferation feed upon the town. And often that's what happens with fear. Often we are afraid in advance. So often it's fear of the future. What if this happened? What that happened? And once I had a friend, all his life he was afraid that if something was happen, were to happen, his life would be finished. So all the time, yeah, that's the back of this. <gasps> if this happened, I hope it doesn't happen. <gasps> if this happened. And then I met him. And he looked a little funny. I said, what the matter? He said, you know what I was afraid of for 30 years? It happened. And I said, then? I'm totally fine. He was fine. It was difficult, it was sad, but he was fine. His life was not finished. Because in the actuality of it, his creative potential could engage with it. But when he feared it in advance, it was all abstraction. And his creative potential could not do anything with it. It was stopped from that. So I think it's in a way to see one of the signs of grasping, I would say, is proliferating, abstracting about something in a proliferating way. Another aspect of that is exaggeration. And so we can easily 
sensation contact, and if we grasp, we exaggerate. But when we exaggerate, we reduce ourselves. Again, and then back to the thing. This is the most fantastic thing in the universe. This is the worst thing in the universe. This is terrible. I can't handle it. And you can hear it when you say, I cannot stand this. My niece, when she was younger, used to get into this kind of uh, boredom funk. And it was like, I am bored. You know, like it was like kind of, you know, the worst thing in the universe. It was very interesting. That kind of like, because just for, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, not much was happening. It was like straight away there was this exaggeration of that feeling too. And in a way, the creative engagement is, okay, what is going on? And to see that this is not all we are. I think often this is a problem with grasping, is that we reduce ourselves. So in that way, we can reduce ourselves to a thought, we can reduce ourselves to a feeling, to a sensation, to a problem, to a relationship. And then all our life is just that. And then this is extremely painful. And so the creative engagement and part of the process of meditation is back to the bigger picture. To see, I am not just that. Of course, I can have this sensation, I can have this thought, I can have this emotion, I can have this problem, I can have that. But this is only one aspect of my experience. And I think this is what, in a way, for me, the meditation, the awareness, is about actually discovering the condition that forms us, the inner condition meeting the outer condition. And that's why often there is this idea in Buddhism of not-self, but often is translated as no-self. And then you feel that, you know, you're going to disappear. But actually, the thing is more about discovering the condition that forms us. And then to see that often what we do is that we grasp at one of the conditions that forms us. We reduce ourselves to that one condition. I don't know if you use computers, but you might. And often we have little trouble with computers, you know, uh, a few years ago, I was finishing a book, and I had inputted, you know, all this data, all this correction, two weeks of work. And then I pressed a button, and it went forever after. And the first thought which I could see arrive was, I am so stupid. I'm always stupid. Instead, I did not go there. I did not grasp at that. I went more into creative engagement. I made a mistake. This is not a good idea to press that button. <laughs> you know? I will not press that button again. <laughs> and then I started to input it again, and it was fine. But to see that, in a way, you can go into the grasping, 
and then get stuck. Or you can go into the creative engagement. Whoops, I made a mistake. It happens. How can I creatively deal with it? And to finish with the creative engagement, just to leave you with one more thing. I mean, there are many things we can be in contact with, and I cannot go over everything tonight. But one thing which is interesting, I know you are in silence, but it's words. Words. What are words? Just a little kind of sonorous waves. I mean, it's really, I say a word, and it's gone. But what do we do? Often we hear a word and we grasp at it and we keep it. And so you sit in meditation and two years ago she said this. How could she say this? This was so mean. And then we generally obsess, ruminate and plot revenge. But that's another story. But in a way, I'm not saying that the person did not say it. I'm not saying it was not painful. But it's gone. The word is gone. And to me, this is an important thing when we listen to words, to what somebody says to us. Do I grasp at what they say? Proliferate, exaggerate? Or do I creatively engage? And I ask the question... What they say, is it about them or is it about me? And then consider if it's relevant or not. Sometimes it is, and maybe we need to do something, and sometimes it is not whatsoever. And in a way, we don't need to buy it. So I think this is something to, to kind of look at. How do we hear words? What do we do with it? Grasping or creatively engaging. Then what I wanted to, to talk about was, in a way, the connection I see between the vipassana aspect of the practice, the looking deeply, the experiential inquiry, and its connection to compassion. Because I think often we can take this looking deeply, this experiential inquiry, as some kind of thought process. And of course, we use our consciousness. We use our mindfulness. But I think that's why I call it experiential inquiry. That actually, it's not so much about thinking something, but more about experiencing something, knowing something with our whole body and mind. And so what we're trying to know in that way, to see and to know, as the Buddha would say, is actually the three characteristics. Impermanence, dukkha, and not-self. So I would like to look at each. Impermanence, you might have heard about before. This is one of the big themes for Buddhists, impermanence. But actually, you have two sides to impermanence. One is what I would call ultimate impermanence. The fact that at some point, we're going to die. And our teacher, 
had this wonderful experience, uh, expression. He used to say, your life rests upon a single breath. Since it is so, what are you going to do now? Are you going to be awake to your life now? Or are you going to take for granted? Are you going to sleep through it? And in a way, what we have to be careful with impermanence is actually to use impermanence a little like we use uh, fate. Oh, something gets broken, a vase gets broken. Who cares? It's impermanent. Especially if it's not mine. <laughs> Who cares? It's impermanent. And for a long time, at the beginning, I used a little impermanence in that way. Oh, who cares? It's impermanent. Until I saw actually my father die. I saw his last breath. And when I saw his last breath, I really, in that moment, experienced impermanence. And in that moment, arose compassion. Because in that moment I understood that life was fleeting. Indeed, it rested upon a single breath. And then I look at myself and at others in such a different way. Instead of looking at how the history I had with them, the idea I had with them, I suddenly creatively engage with them in that moment. That's immediately I saw it with my mother. Instead of going back to my role as the daughter and her the mother, suddenly I could really see her as a human being whose life was precious and was so fleeting. And then this compassion arose. And to me this is in a way why this thing of impermanence is important is that then if we really know that thing is impermanent, then actually we appreciate them more because we're not dead yet. So it's not making us morbid, but it's more like, ah, right now. This is a moment to be awake right now. This is a moment I can be compassionate. The other aspect of impermanence is actually that thing can change. And it's what I would call the gift of impermanence. To actually give to ourselves and to others. Because often, we fix, if we grasp, if we reduce, we fix ourselves. I am always like this. I will always be like that. I will never change. You will never change. To me, this is actually one of the most uncompassionate things we can do. is to say, either to ourselves or to others, you will never change. Basically, you are saying that whatever you are doing, you're going to do every second, every hour, every day, every week, every year, forever after. When I started to learn to drive after I stopped uh, being a nun, when I was in my 30s, Once I got my driving license, suddenly I started to, in those days you could still do it, now not, uh, lock the key in the car. 
to do it one time, phone my husband. Second time, phone my husband. Third time, he says, you always lock the key in the car. And I had this vision (laughs) of me doing it forever after. And I thought, our marriage is doomed. (laughs) But then I thought, that's not true. I don't do it all the time. I do it time to time. (laughs) Then I turned to creative engagement. I thought, but when do I do it? And then I looked and I realized I did it when I had to park in a difficult place. After that difficult parking, I went for the key straight away. And then my husband started to do it. Lock the key in the car. (laughs) And to me, this is important is that it doesn't mean that the person is going to change fast. It doesn't mean that we're going to change fast. But it means that when I see myself, when I see the other person, I know that there is a potential for change. So we know I don't give up on myself, or I don't give up on the other person. (coughs) Then the next one is dukkha. And actually dukkha means three different things means unreliability, because things change, they're unreliable. Unsatisfactoriness, not because you cannot get no satisfaction, but because things change, we cannot have lasting satisfaction. That's all what the Buddha is saying, that actually we cannot get permanent satisfaction, permanent happiness. It doesn't mean we cannot be temporarily happy or temporarily satisfied. But what is interesting is that we have this thirst for, I want to be happy all the time. And of course it would be nice if we were happy all the time, healthy all the time. But because things change, it's a little tricky, you know. So in a way, the Buddha is saying, is trying to help us to accept that things change. But things changing means they can go up, they can go down, then they can go up again. So it's kind of more accepting that. But in terms of the compassion, it seems to me the the interesting one is the third aspect of dukkha, which is called dukkha dukkha. And that one is suffering. Mental suffering, emotional suffering, physical suffering. There are different kinds of suffering. And what the Buddha is saying is not everything is suffering, but he's just saying because things change, because things break down, they can be suffering. And so in a way, he's trying to help us to creatively engage with suffering. Because the problem with grasping at suffering is that if we grasp at it, we proliferate or we exaggerate. And Suffering is painful enough that actually we don't want to do that. But I think more than that, if we really know suffering, then actually we realize something. And this is what I realized. Because when I became a nun, that was in the 70s. And in the 70s, and I was 22 in 75, 
And in the 70s, there was a big movement. This was the early day of the new age, which were kind of the, the old age revisited from the 1920s. I mean, this has been going on. This new age has been going on for a long time, revisited in different ways at different times. So one of the big things then was it's all in the mind. Whatever happened, it's all in the mind. You have an illness, you have this, you have that, it's all in the mind. And if you just sort out your mind, you'll be okay. So I remember in those early days of being a nun, there was somebody who was there also who was ill. And I used to tell her, come on, you know, get your mind together and then you'll be okay. You know, you won't have any pain. And then I got ill. <laughs> and I had some pain. And then, and it was pain in the stomach. And it was very painful. And first I went around like, you know, like an old kind of, you know, crone. Oh, this is painful. Why me? Why is this happening to me? Until I realized, I was saying, why is it not happening to somebody else? <laughs> Which I thought for a Buddhist nun was not very compassionate. <laughs> then I realized, but maybe this is a suffering the Buddha is talking about. And then I realized maybe the Buddha has a point that the suffering is conditional. The suffering is not essential. The suffering is conditional. And I said, wait a minute. I am not experiencing this stomach pain all the time. So then I started to creatively engage. When is it happening? Because it happened time to time. And then I realized it happened when there was big ceremonies. Then when there was big ceremony, you had lots of fancy food, which we generally did not get normally. But lots of really interesting little tiddly bits of this. And then, of course, being curious, I would try everything. And because my stomach is not so good, then I would get ill. Once I realized that, I stopped doing it. Because I knew it was my choice. Do I want to have this dukkha or not? I did not, so I stopped doing that. And I was much less ill after that. But actually being ill myself made me realize it's not all in the mind whatsoever. It's really actually physiological. But also another thing it showed me is that actually it really gave me compassion for myself when I am ill, but even more so for others when they're ill. Because I realized two things. That when we suffer, whatever kind of suffering it is, nobody can experience our suffering for us. So not only is it painful, it is isolating. And I, when I realized I, how isolating the pain was, then compassion could not but arise for myself and others. Then we have the last one. And the last one is no self, or nowadays we could translate it as not self. And not self basically doesn't mean either that we don't exist, we think we exist but we don't. And so our great aim in meditation is to disappear. You know, that I expect you by the end of the week, I all puff of smoke on the cushion. You know? 
I think often there is this idea of this no self, of this emptiness, so I'm looking for this emptiness, so you're expecting either your mind to be empty or suddenly you feel empty or whatever it is. I'm not saying we cannot have experience of emptiness or we cannot have experience where we have no thought, but that actually that's not what we're looking for. That's not what the idea of no self, of not self, of emptiness is about. Emptiness, not self, is basically saying we cannot reduce ourselves either to an essence or to any one thing. So basically, the not self is to open ourselves to a flow of condition, to actually to see ourselves in a multi-perspectival way, and seeing all the inner condition meeting the outer condition that forms us. That's what it is about. And so to me, the meditation is very much about an exploration of condition. And so we have to be careful to think that actually what we're trying to do in meditation is to be above condition. I think on the contrary. The awareness makes us see how much condition we are by so many different things. And so what we're trying to do is actually creatively engage with these conditions instead of grasping and reducing ourselves to any one element of this flow of condition. Let's do a little experiment. At the moment, more or less, by now, by the third day, everybody has a cushion as their chair and you might think a little my cushion my chair and if somebody come and sit on your chair or your cushion hey this is mine isn't it like you know you own it but you could try an experiment and say this flow of condition is using this cushion. This flow of condition is heating. This flow of condition is experiencing this feeling sensation. How would it be? Sometimes you can play like this. Because if you say mine, it's like mine. Like seem the self comes up. The flow of condition is more like, oh yeah, I am using this cushion. And I can use this cushion. But then there is not that kind of starting to grasp at it. And so this idea actually of looking at the flow of condition that forms us, that I find is very interesting. To actually reflect on actually... There is, I mean, also to be very careful that this not self or this emptiness is not saying that we're not different. And we are different because our flow of condition is different over time. What we do, where we're born, in which culture, what we eat, etc., etc. So, in a way, the meditation is not to make us all into kind of meditative Buddhist robots looking, acting the same. But I would say actually make you more who you are. 
because of that creative engagement with this flow of condition. And if we look at the flow of condition, then we can ask our one question. How is this flow of condition surviving? What is my survival right now depending upon? And actually, if we look, our survival depends on everything outside ourselves, a lot of it. The food I eat, the medicine I take, the clothes I wear, the house I live in, the air I breathe, None of this I produce. I mean, you could be a self kind of, you know. There was a movement some, some years ago where one was supposed to be self-sufficient. But up to a point, unless you go to the top of the mountain and do everything by yourself. But nowadays, actually, it's more we depend on the labor, on the energy of so many different things for our existence. And I think if we realize that, if we experience it, then we actually see that we are of the same life. And then to me arise compassion. Compassion for the people, the energy, the labor, which make my life possible. And so then, instead of feeling ourselves as fixed, separate, isolated, on the lookout for anybody to attack us, then actually we feel into this, what is now called a little interdependence, interconnection. And I think one way to do this is actually with the breath. One interesting little exercise to do when you are aware of the breath, is that at some point you are aware of the breath and at some point you ask, what is this air that I breathe? but not in a scientific CO2O2 way, but more, what is this air that I breathe right now? And actually, basically, I am breathing your air, and you're breathing mine. That's why after a while it gets a little stuffy. But generally, how do we think about our air? Like, mine is about, you know, like this, a cocoon around me, and mine... Is clean, you know? <laughs> yours, don't know about yours. Mine is good. But often that's the way we feel. It's interesting. Well, actually, there is no barrier. And there is this constant exchange. My air going into yours, yours in mine, breathing with the tree, with the elements, with the animals. And so, in a way, I feel this creative engagement, this looking deeply into the three characteristics, is making right this compassion. Compassion for the fragility of life. Compassion for the potential of life. Compassion for the pain in life. And compassion for this life, which is so interconnected. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes.
because until that happens, I can't value it myself. Something to do with a book I've read or something I've been given. Unless I pass it on, um, it doesn't, the value isn't there for me. And I wondered how that fits into this picture. I mean, there is different way to, to, to look at this. First, I would like to say about the grasping, that I'm not talking about grasping 0%. But as I said the other day, I'm thinking of diminishing the grasping to 50. Because 50%, we need to make this uh, organism survive in connection with helping other organisms to survive. So I think it's kind of human life to have some grasping, just in order to survive. So I think a little bit of grasping is just kind of, you know, eating, drinking, living, wearing clothes, etc. But then what is interesting is to look, when does it become in a way more than the 50%? Then often we can see the tension. We can see the, I want something. And the question is, do I want it or do I need it? And that's interesting, that difference between wanting it and needing it. When I stopped being a nun, when I was a nun, I did not need very much, and it was all provided, so I did not do any shopping. And then I stopped being a nun, and then I had to shop. And then I could see that I would plot for a month to get something. And there was this kind of desire, you know, I want to dress, I want to shoe, some shoes or whatever. Then I would get it, and then within a day, the next one, you know, and I would plot for a month and then get it until I decided, you know, I need it, I get it, or I don't, but this is it. I'm not going to spend a month kind of, you know. But I was very aware of the, hmm, actually, before anything I wanted, there was this, hmm, I want this. That, I thought, was very interesting to experience after 10 years not having had it. In terms of sharing, because what you're talking about is in a way... We have something we appreciate. You see, to me, non-grasping, creative engagement doesn't mean we cannot appreciate something, doesn't mean we cannot share it. But then we have to see how do we share it. And it's what I would call wise generosity, wise compassion. Because sometimes you can share something with somebody who is not interested whatsoever. Or sometimes you can share something with somebody and it really makes such a difference in their lives. So to me, the thing is not about it has more value if I share it, but I would look at who do I share it with? How do I share it? And is it like kind of immediate or is it later on? How strong is it? Does it bring tension or not? And how is it received? Is it helpful or not? You know, sometimes you're, you're kind of trying to tell a, a funny story or a wonderful story, and you can see it's not going anywhere. You know? <laughs> and then now, generally, I stop. You know, no, Let's go somewhere else. <laughs> no point to go on this one. Or if you're talking about a book or something, and you can see the people glazing their eyes. But sometimes, yes. I think you know, there is a place for that also, because you appreciate it. You want to share it. But... Are you sharing it, I would say, in a creatively engaged way, 
or are you sharing it in a grasping way? I remember, because in Korea, when you eat food, generally you have to eat with others. Korea is a very communal country, very communal spirit. And so if you eat, you have really to eat with others. Otherwise, it's really, really very egoist to eat by oneself. So here I was in a, in a town, and I was hungry, and I had bought some nuts, and I was hungry, and I wanted to eat them, but I felt bad that I would eat them on my own. And so I was in the bath, and I was looking for a likely target <laughs> of my sharing, you know? I had something good, I wanted to share it so I could have it. And I found a little boy, you know, three years old, victim of my compassion. <laughs> and the mother could not stop it because I was a nun, so, you know, she could, and then it was a disaster because the boy could not eat the nuts. And, <laughs> and then I learned I have to be careful here. And back to, do I creatively engage with the generosity? Or is there some grasping involved? That's kind of what I would look at. Yes? About? Duka Duka. Well, you see... No, you see, the thing is that generally, dukkha is translated as suffering. And then the first noble truths become, a lot of people say everything is suffering. But actually, that's not what it is. The Buddha is just saying in the first noble truth, uh, either you can translate it as there is suffering, but he's also saying that sabha, sankara, dukkha, conditioned things are unreliable, unsatisfactory, and can be painful. So the thing is that generally dukkha is translated as suffering. When actually dukkha covers the three things. And that's, when, and that's where the third one, in terms of the characteristic of the second characteristic, is said dukkha dukkha. And then it's really actually more close to what we mean by suffering. This is actually the problem with the translation. How is it has become so used to say dukkha is suffering. When actually dukkha is more unreliability combined with unsatisfactoriness and there can be some suffering in it. And so dukkha, dukkha basically means pain. And so it's kind of like one aspect of conditioned existence. Because the first noble truth is about that, conditioned existence. So basically the Buddha is saying conditioned things are dukkha because they are unreliable, they are dukkha because they can be unsatisfactory, and they can also be painful. But they're not necessarily painful because you cannot say this bell is painful. But you can say this bell is unreliable. I mean, it might... It's quite solid, so it will, at some point, it might change over time. So that's the difference with talking of dukkha dukkha, which there is really mental suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering, relationship suffering. 
when actually in the Four Noble Truths the meaning is much wider, but it's hard to find an English word which cover the whole of the meaning as a second characteristic. Yes. The way I would look at them, I would say the easiest one in meditation to be aware of is basically to be aware of uh, impermanence. It seems to me this is the one which is the most experiential. Because if you start to think about unreliability, if you start to think about unsatisfactoriness, I mean, dukkha dukkha, you could, if you, you know, have some mental pain, you, you can, yes, look at it, if it's there. But the other two, it's a little abstract, I think, a little intellectual. The same about the not-self. I mean, there are various exercises where you can try to see the not-self. But then, to me, it's maybe more looking at conditions and to see that things happen because they are conditioned. But then, if you do this in meditation, it seems to me it becomes a little intellectual. Like, you know... uh, once I had this funny experience, you know, I was sitting doing the listening meditation, and then I heard the sound of a bird, beautiful. And in that moment, I had the kind of that uh, vision that there was this beautiful sound from the bird, which came from this bird, which actually, very likely, I just killed the worm and was feeling quite kind of full and then could do his song. So actually the beautiful song came from the death of the world. So it was conditioned on something. So I kind of saw the conditionality of the song, the beauty of the song. But if you, if you see it in that moment, I think it's fine. But if you think about it, it becomes a little abstract. So generally what I would recommend is more to look at the changing nature changing nature of feeling tone, of thought, feeling sensation, because that we can really experience in the meditation generally easily. But then the other, I would really look at in daily life. To me, it's really for daily life to see how we are when something is unreliable, how we assume, you know, you know suddenly there is, you know, like no electricity, once in France, there was, I was here teaching and there was lots of electricity here. And in France, there was this huge storm and they had no electricity for a, a week. And so it was kind of you know, really uh, difficult for a lot of people. And Stephen was, I was phoning him and he was so happy, he was so nice, so quiet, so, <laughs> so peaceful. And at the same time, he could take care of my mother and grandmother, so it was good for them. And they had some firewood, so they were okay. But it's interesting, you know, you, you, you can notice uh, what you assume. With re- unreliability, is a lot about assumption, about modern life. After I lived in Korea for 10 years, when in those days things were not so reliable, now they're much more. And my first few uh, months in uh, England, I was amazed. Ah, hot water. Every day, all the time. Electricity, ooh, it works. I was like, wow. And I really appreciated it. And then very quickly I take it for granted. 
And then he doesn't work. Wait a minute. How come? <laughs> no? Your computer, ah, why is it not working? To, to see what is, our, are we creatively engaging with unreliability or are we fighting it? That's one thing in daily life we can really look at. Then unsatisfactoriness, that is very interesting in daily life, to see how actually I feel we are addicted to not satisfaction, but the hope of lasting satisfaction. So I feel that it's kind of, we have this, this is going to give it to me. So we plot, plot, plot to get something. We get it. It doesn't last very long. Plot the next one. And then it seems we become addicted to, to more the feeling this is going to give to me. And which is a bit like the feeling you have before you go on holiday. I mean, for two months before you go on holiday, you have such fantastic holiday in your mind. Ah, it's fantastic. It's, oh, I'm going, it's really wonderful. And then you get there. And it's not bad, but not as good as... <laughs> you know, that happened to my uh, sister and my niece for two months before I took them to London. They were really so happy. After, when they got there, it was okay. But <laughs> <laughs> so I feel it's this kind of like addiction to the hope that this is going to make me so happy. And so that is interesting to, to observe, to that, to look at. Oh, it doesn't mean we cannot hope for something, we cannot appreciate something, but to notice the difference between am I creatively engaging with it or am I grasping at it? How can I be with this? Or when something does not satisfy, how can I be with that? If there is dukkha of whatever nature, how am I with that? How does it feel? Conditions that we can really observe in daily life. You know that one moment you're not, you're, you're fine, you're at peace, you're such a composed meditator, and yes, you know, I feel so at peace. And then somebody says something, and it's like, you become this monster. It's like, and you know, one minute before you were fine. What happened? And instead of thinking, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm a failed meditator, whatever, it's more interesting. What happened? What was the trigger? What was the contributing factor? I used to, to uh, kind of be irritated and then to look for somebody to be irritated with. And generally I found my husband. <laughs> and he would say, but I have not done anything. Then I, would, then I started to think, but why am I irritated? Why am I looking for, you know, to be irritated with somebody? And then I backtracked to contact. And then I realized it was when I was tired. I would come back tired. Then that would give rise to irritation. And then I would look for something outside. Then I, be, I tried to become more conscious of that tiredness. And then when I feel tired now, I go to rest. And then I'm generally a much nicer person. So that's what, that, in daily life, there is a lot of scope. I would nearly say more scope in terms of the diversity of what we can explore in terms of the vipassana. And I feel that for the meditation, I would generally recommend more with the 
impermanent unless something is happening. And then in that moment, you can see the unreliability or whatever. We can do this at the moment with the weather. You know, bank holiday weekend. <laughs> it's supposed to be sunny. It's in August. Okay, so we might uh, stop here and do some walking meditation or standing meditation before the final sitting.